Welcome to From the Frontline. This is your host, Ryan Underwood, in the studio with Dr. Peter Hammond. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Tonight we will be discussing the coming conflict with communist China. Today we hear much about multipolarity and the rise of China on the geopolitical stage. Close to home, South Africa is a part of the BRICS Economic Union, which challenges the petrodollar as the world reserve currency. However, we know that since 1949, China has been dominated by the Chinese Communist Party, a militantly Marxist political entity that has severely persecuted Christians and what has become the most populous nation on the planet. There are also signs of a hot war developing over Taiwan in the South China Sea. 1 Chronicles 12 tells us that the children of Issachar were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. The goal of today's program is to help our audience understand the times with regards to the brewing geopolitical conflict with China. First, Dr. Hemmen, please introduce our audience to pre-revolutionary China, especially the growth of Christianity in China prior to 1949. Well, by God's grace, many missionaries had done a lot of great work in China in the 19th century in particular, Hudson Taylor being very premier in terms of having the China Inland Mission Policy, where he launched the first interdenominational mission, which used lay people and single women as well as married women in the field, which was, and they didn't all have to have Bible college training. All of this was quite revolutionary for the time, because the immensity of the task, Hudson Taylor organized an interdenominational faith mission, which was also the first of its kind where the leadership would not be back in Britain or in the home country, the sending country, but in the field. His idea was the people who took the risk should be the ones making the policy. And Hudson Taylor built up the biggest mission the world had ever seen to that date, over a thousand missionaries in China by the turn of the century. And uh, they did a phenomenal amount of work. I think they had something like 80,000 baptized Chinese Christians in fellowships organized by the time of the death of Hudson Taylor. So Hudson Taylor really did a phenomenal amount of work. We've got to remember Robert Morrison, the first Protestant missionary to China before him, who did a lot of the Bible translation work as well. Many missionaries worked hard, and there were hundreds of missionaries who died in the Boxer Rebellion, very anti-Christian rebellion in 1900 at the turn of the previous century. Uh, so the blood of the martyrs really uh, were... Uh, in China, and you can see today much of the fruits of that sacrifice. The early missionaries to China from C.T. Studd, Hudson Taylor, Robert Morrison left a phenomenal legacy, and many people thought when the communists took over China in 1949, that would be the end of the church, the extinction of Christianity in China. In fact, when I was converted in 1977, I remember a China Inland Mission missionary coming past our church, telling us to pray for the church in China, and I sat there in, in disbelief, thinking, what do you mean pray for the church in China? It doesn't exist. I mean, they're all dead. And most of us in the 1970s had the view that the church in China was gone, extinct, never to be seen again. Uh, well, maybe some people thought it would rise sometime, but I certainly didn't think there was a present church in China. The Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, Mao Zedong, the Little Red Book, how could the chi Chinese church have survived? And it was a few years later that the word started to come out that in fact, there were over 100 million Christians in present-day China, which seemed impossible because when the commerce seized China in 1949, 
there were barely three million Christians. That's of every sort, including Catholic, Protestant. Every sort of Christian in China would have made no more than three million. And yet, all the indications since Operation World calculates is well over 120 million Christians in China today. We're talking about over a million congregations, mostly house churches, underground churches, unregistered churches. But it's just a phenomenal growth rate. And uh, I've met people from China who've been converted uh, under communist China through the work of, of the underground church. And uh, the church in China is obviously very strong, resilient, and they're enduring a lot of persecution, severe, vicious persecution. But uh, prior to the revolution of 1949, China was considered a Western ally. In fact, in the Second World War, nationalist China was one of the allies. When you see the propaganda pictures of the Western allies, you'll see the South African flag along with the Norwegian flag, along with the British American and the nationalist flag of China, what today is the flag of Republic of China, Taiwan. They were, in fact, at the founding of the United Nations, considered a permanent member on a security council with veto powers. Later, treacherously, the West took away that from nationalist China and gave it to communist China, very treacherously. I think that happened under Richard Nixon, sadly. And uh, nationalist China was an ally of the West, but they were betrayed. One of the books on the shelf downstairs in our library is Ally Betrayed China, speaking how the government of um, Truman in America betrayed nationalist China and although the Congress was voting for aid to nationalist China, the CIA was redirecting its aid to the communists of Mao Zedong, and that nationalist China was actually betrayed. And it seems, without a shadow of a doubt, West and the Western powers did betray nationalist China, Chiang Kai-shek's China. And so they, during the revolution, as they were outnumbered, outmanned, outgunned, outsupplied, uh, they had a contingency plan to relocate Republic of China onto the island of Formosa or Taiwan and uh, make it uh, their bastion. And so Republic of China relocated offshore to the Republic of Taiwan and um, the communists seized the mainland. And so that's the situation we've had since 1949. A free China on Taiwan and captive communist China and the Communist Party of China on the mainland. Thank you, Dr. Hammond, for explaining the history of China prior to the revolution, as well as the rise of the CCP during and after the revolution. You mentioned the West's uh, complicity in that revolution. It, that seems like a remarkable fact. Do we have any other examples from recent history of the West siding with the communists? Unfortunately, all too many. Um, we've also got books downstairs on Allah betrayed Iran, Allah betrayed uh, Nicaragua, where the West allied itself with anti-Western influences like the Shah of Iran was considered a good ally of the West. And uh, they were betrayed into the hands of the Ayatollah Khomeini. <coughs> and uh, pardon me, we all kind of battling some kind of colds and flus and infections at this time. Uh, so Nicaragua, which also had been consistently pro-American, reliable ally, was betrayed in the hands of the communist Sandinista Marxist under Jimmy Carter's regime. Jimmy Carter's regime in America also betrayed Rhodesia into the hands of the uh, 
Marxist of ZANU PF and Robert Mugabe. Of course, South Africa was also betrayed into the hands of the ANC. And all of this was the work of the British Foreign Office and the US State Department, uh, with, of course, the globalists and the Council of Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergers being behind the scenes, trilateral commission. They all played a part. But um, the US State Department and CIA was heavily involved in the betrayal of countries like Rhodesia, South Africa, Nicaragua, and Iran, with tragic consequences to this day. You mentioned the Chinese Cultural Revolution. What did that involve? The Cultural Revolution was the second phase of the revolution in China. So the first phase of the revolution is political control. Second phase of the revolution, which can be very soon or it can be a, a generation later, in the case of China, where they go for economic control, agricultural control, political, um, not just political control, but now cultural control, control of the people itself, the institutions, the religions. Basically, they work to destroy the religions. So, Cultural Revolution launched in the 1960s in China, was launched by Mao Zedong with his little red book. Now, he had a generation of people who'd never lived in nationalist China. All they knew was the indoctrination propaganda of the Communist Party. And these young red gods, as they were called, were mobilized into all the villages and towns, hamlets throughout China, and they looted, destroyed, pillaged, beat up, executed, humiliated the older people, the teachers, the Confucian monks, uh, all the way through to ministers of the gospel, of course. And they would often, as part of the Cultural Revolution, not only destroy the old art and books of the past, cancel culture in a very real sense, destroying and pulling down old monuments, destroying and burning the old books, changing the names, but humiliating the symbols of the old world, whether it's the mayor or the minister or the Confucian Buddhist monk, or, and they would have to stand on a chair with a sign around their neck written in Chinese, something like, reactionary, counter-revolutionary, black marketeer, something like that. They would accuse them of terrible things. They would humiliate, disgrace them, maybe beat them up, maybe hit them with bamboos, and ultimately have them shot. And uh, this cultural revolution, there were the show trials, and it was the deciding to degrade the memory of people who were elders and uh, respected leaders in the old world. So it was total cult ca uh, cancel culture, revolution, think of BLM, um, in a Chinese sense, absolutely violent. You've got to get everyone else to bow down to your new idols, in this case, Marxist ones, communist ones. And they decided to rebuild the whole country. So this was the second phase of the revolution. It included seizing the farms, seizing everything that was privately owned, and even trying to seize people's minds, hearts, and souls, all for the party and the state. And that's in that cultural revolution, which Mao Zedong even ousted the president of China, and the head of the army. So that's how, now, Chairman Mao was just the chairman of the Communist Party, but he became the sole ruler. He managed to get rid of the president and the head of the army, and the three of them were meant to be ruling China together. So to think you can accuse the president of the country and the head of the army as being counter-revolutionaries is beyond ridiculous, and that's just how far it went. Mao Zedong went that far. Uh, no one was safe. I mean, even the president of the country was one of the counter-revolutionaries that was accused of siding with the 
fascist running dodge or the lackeys of the imperialists and whatever else they wanted to call them. And unfortunately, these youngsters didn't know any better. They'd never lived under anything other than communism. They believed the propaganda and they were useful idiots in this wanton destruction where they destroyed thousands of years of Chinese culture and made the country an agricultural basket case. By the way, amongst the Cultural Revolution, with the idiocy of it, they decided to kill millions and millions of swallows. Somewhere along the line, uh, China got the idea that swallows are eating some of the fruit. Not understanding how important the swallows were for the ecology in general, they mobilized everyone had to kill, and they, people had to come with the, the amounts of dead swallows that they'd killed. And these people, millions of people chasing these poor swallows until they were killed. And the killing of millions of swallows was so catastrophic, it led to such agricultural disaster. There was a plague of locusts, which the swallows would have dealt with, and other insects that swallows would have dealt with, that destroyed the crops, and they went into abject famine. Millions died as a result of just the killing of the swallows. Uh, millions of people died of starvation as a result. It was such a short-term, um, typical communist where they can't think of the consequences of this big action like when the Soviets drained the Ural Sea by over-irrigating and destroyed the second largest inland sea where um, fishing villages were now 100 kilometers from the shore. So only a communist centralized state can destroy economies that totally. And despite Justin Trudeau of Canada's admiration for Chinese Communist Party ability to turn the economy around in a dime, the result was catastrophic. According to the Guinea's Book of Records, Mao Zedong gets the award of the worst mass murder in all of history. During the Cultural Revolution alone, he killed about 68 million people, which boggles the mind that they can kill on such a massive scale. But this is what happens when you've got these young fanatics of the Red Guards who were youngsters who'd never lived under any other system, who believed the propaganda and were fanatics without real knowledge. Fast forward to the 21st century. Communist China is a world superpower. We often hear about the CCP's vision for a greater China. They use the term the One China Policy. Can you please explain that policy for us? Yes, it's, it's mostly myth and legend. There never was a One China. And China right now is an imperialistic regime which has invaded other countries such as Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan never was China. They've got an idea of their ideal boundary which never really existed in all of history. And in that, they somehow claim that Taiwan has always been part of China, which is not true. It was Chinese for a very short time. In fact, before the Second World War, Taiwan was Formosa. It was a Japanese island. It was held by Japan. It had been part of Japan for a very long time most of the 20th century. So the fact that they can think that they've got the right to all of China because of some kind of manifest destiny idea is, is patently false. Historically, can I point to one time in history that China has had the exact boundaries they've got today, which includes territory that they've invaded and taken from India, Nepal, Bhutan, and Pakistan. So China's invaded and attacked every one of their neighbors. In fact, they also invaded uh, uh, Vietnam in 1979, and actually they came off second. Uh, they didn't do well at all. The very militarily experienced veterans of Vietnam beat the Chinese, despite the fact that the Chinese had a massively large army. Um, again, it just points out the fact that size isn't everything, and 
battle hardiness and experience means everything. China does not have a battle-tested army. They haven't fought a modern enemy with the exception of Vietnam, and they lost that war in 1979. But they have stolen territory from India, Pakistan, Nepal, and these countries are waiting to get it back. And Tibet, of course, under the Dalai Lama, still um, nurtures hopes of restoring their independence and their freedom. So I think we can expect to see a Taiwan, uh, not, not just Taiwan, but Tibet restored. There's a lot of people who are waiting for China to lower their guard. And if China gets involved, for example, in a war with Taiwan, Tibet might take the opportunity to start a war of secession and get their freedom back because, and I'm sure Pakistan, India are just waiting for an opportunity for China to downscale their forces on the mainland so that they can take back the territories that have been seized from them during previous um, adventures of the Chinese Communist Party. So the one Chinese policy is they think anywhere where there's Chinese, they should uh, be able to have their country, which means that they may want to annex Australia one of these days because a lot of Chinese people living in Australia. Uh, um, Hong Kong, of course, was a British mandate. Britain had bought it from China on a 100-year lease. And at the end of the 100-year lease, uh, Britain handed back, although that's 1997. At that time, Hong Kong had a bigger economy than the whole of Red China. And the only reason Red China's economy is as huge as it is now is because it includes Hong Kong's. Hong Kong was built on free enterprise, no taxation, tremendous amount of freedom. And uh, the British betraying Hong Kong was quite tragic because everyone knew that that included the territory around Hong Kong, which is the, the so-called new territories, Kowloon. Uh, but Britain didn't have to give Hong Kong itself the actual city back. They could have kept that in perpetuity. It was the Kowloon new territories that they had a 100-year lease on. And they didn't even give the people in Hong Kong a referendum opportunity. Britain didn't give Hong Kong a chance to choose, well, we'd rather be an independent city-state or something like that, like Singapore. They just forced them to come under communist China with a promise of two countries, one, uh, two systems, one country. Hong Kong would continue to be free enterprise, free speech and all that, which, as you know, communist China has not kept to. They've cracked down, there's persecution of the church, cracking down free enterprise and political protests have not been allowed in Hong Kong and those people have been horribly abused, tortured even, and incarcerated without trial. So the one China policy, if you look at what they've done to Hong Kong, that should not give much uh, hope to the people of Taiwan that they would be treated any better. If anything, they can expect a lot worse. With regards to Taiwan... Is the CCP preparing a direct military assault on Taiwan and perhaps open war with the United States even? Yes, they are. In fact, they've been preparing for this for a long time now. They're doing war maneuvers. They've done a lot of aggressive actions. They've done many um, seizing beaches, um, amphibious operations. Now, they've got to cross a 90-mile to 100-mile strait to get to um, Formosa, to Taiwan. Taiwan's like a fortress island. It's got... High cliffs. There's very few beaches around um, around uh, Taiwan that you could land landing craft on, and those are heavily defended. Um, people of Taiwan have had more than 70 years to build up their defences, and they've done a very good job of it. Taiwan's got a phenomenal army, one of the best, most professional armies on the planet. Extremely dedicated and highly motivated. They know they're fighting for their lives and their freedoms and their future. So Taiwan's got uh, probably one of the best militaries on the planet in terms of discipline and focus and commitments. They've also got pretty high standard of weaponry, much better weaponry than China's got. 
The problem with China is they've got an untested army and the equipment is untested in battle also. Now, if we've all had some Chinese products, you know that made in China is not a guarantee of success. In fact, most made in China things break very soon and they, they need a lot of maintenance if they even survive getting them from the shop to your home. And uh, the question is how they can do in a war because a war means extremes of heat, extremes of cold, extremes of tension, pressure, reused. Can a Chinese fighter jet uh, last as long as a fighter jet that's made in the West that's been battle-tested and it has all the improvements? Yes, they might be able to steal the patents and they might be able to copy technology and reverse engineer, but that's not the same thing as all the different best quality that it doesn't need constant maintenance and repairs in the field. To, to maintain an active air force during a war, as some people have had to do in the past, like in the Second World War, takes a very high standard of, of technology and maintenance. We don't know that China's got that ability. China's trying, but they're trying it by copying. And the only hard experience they've got of fighting a modern war is with Vietnam, and they lost that one in 1979. So China is an unproven uh, military, and if they tried to attack Taiwan, uh, they would lose a lot of people. So in the Second World War, America was considering invading Formosa, which was then under Japan, and Formosa was protected by 40,000 Japanese troops. And America calculated at that time it would cost them at least a million men to invade, and they would lose over 100,000 in the attempt to kill the 40,000 Japanese defenders. Now, that's back in 1945. And so America bypassed Formosa and decided it's better to not even try. Um, if China wanted to attack uh, Taiwan, they would lose a lot. They would have to put the entire army on it, at least a million men, at least. And China's only got a two-million-man army in total. If they had to downscale the army and the rest of China, which is huge, then their neighbors have all been um, attacked and stolen from by China would start to use the opportunity to take back what they've lost. I don't think China would be happy to lose Taiwan, uh, Tibet, for example. And uh, they've been so aggressive, they've aggravated every one of their neighbors. They've got hostile borders across the whole of their southern border and some of their uh, western border as well. So it's not that clear if they would manage, but China certainly is wanting to. They're practicing. They're doing a lot of hostile maneuvers and threats to Taiwan, such as flying jets ever closer to the um, security zone of Taiwan, forcing Ch Taiwan to scramble their jets and to prepare. And they've shot missiles towards Taiwan and even right over Taiwan, where they go all the way over Taiwan and crash on the other side of the sea. How's Taiwan to know where this missiles are meant to go? So they've been doing very hostile things to just test the readiness of Taiwan and keep them jumpy. But on the other hand, Taiwan's been well-trained and their responses are very efficient. So um, if somebody thinks, well, China's much bigger, Yes, much bigger doesn't necessarily mean it's easier to conquer. The United States was much bigger than Vietnam, but the United States failed to defeat Vietnam. You could argue that the United States failed to defeat Afghanistan either. And, and the United States has got massive amounts of military experience going back centuries, uh, whereas China's got no real military experience of fighting a serious modern war against any modern army. All they've been effective at is killing defenseless, disarmed civilians. And uh, even that, uh, they haven't succeeded in destroying the church, which is stronger now than it ever was when they started the great cultural revolution. So 
China is definitely saying they want to take Taiwan by force as well. The government says so. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs says so. The military says so. They've been gearing up the people to fight Taiwan. But what most people need to understand is China is already at war with the West. They have declared that war with America, and everyone living in China knows they are at war with the United States, America, and the Western governments already. Thank you, Dr. Hammond. While the comment, uh, while the CCP's uh, conventional military uh, strategy and contention, uh, conventional military abilities are unproven, do they have any other forms of warfare that they might employ? Yes. Well, one thing is we do know they have nuclear weapons. They've got at least 400 nuclear bombs. We're not sure if they've got the a missile capability of delivering them. They have missiles, they even have what they call intercontinental ballistic missiles. Nobody is aware of whether they're efficient, whether they'll work, whether they will actually go as far as they say they will, whether they can reach a target, or whether they'd miss it by 100 miles or what. Because, you know, Chinese technology is still much, leaves much to be desired. And uh, if we compare with what they export for business, um, then our trust in their delivery vehicles would be uh, misplaced. However, uh, China believes in what they call asymmetrical warfare or total warfare, meaning that they are seeing warfare as being economic, propaganda, um, espionage, stealing uh, patents and technology from other countries, which they're busy with all the time, undermining other countries, including using viruses. They've got a massive biological, war biological warfare capability as we just saw with the COVID cult, which came from the Wuhan Bacteriological Warfare Laboratory, which, by the way, is run by a general of the CCP of the Chinese, or shall I say PLA, People's Liberation Army. He's a member of the CCP, but he's also a general in the Chinese People's Liberation Army, so-called PLA. So it's a military-run biological warfare laboratory that Fauci and the CDC were funding that produced the uh, COVID vaccine which was made 10,000 times more contagious than it would be a natural um, in nature. And that's US taxpayers funded, which I think that's all been proven very effectively. And we can see that they even have written uh, textbooks. In fact, the general in charge of the Wuhan Bacteriological Warfare Laboratory has written a book on asymmetric warfare, where he says, we're not strong enough to fight America in conventional ways or even nuclear, but we, we can fight them with drugs and we can fight them with viruses and pandemics and so on. And the Secret Service or the, the um, spy agency of uh, China is involved in smuggling all kinds of drugs, including cocaine and um, uh, what's thetamine? What is it that they're talking about now? Uh, uh, meth? It's just new kinds of meth type things that are flooding America right now that thousands of people have died of already. Mm -hmm. Well, they're using drugs, and there's no doubt that a lot of the drugging of America is deliberate. Uh, it's been documented in books like Red Cocaine, how the KGB and the Chinese Communist Party secret police had as a primary task getting drugs into America to drug the American youth because that's going to affect their military and their ability to defend themselves. It's a cheaper way than shooting your enemy to get them to pay for their drugs that are going to debilitate them, make them undisciplined and incapable of, of being effective as soldiers or as producers. So uh, they're using a wide range of warfare, which includes, by the way, buying up Hollywood 
uh, cinemas in many Hollywood film producing companies are now partially owned by China or even totally owned by China. And you can see an increase in films where the Chinese are the heroes and, and so on and so forth. Even a James Bond film where James Bond teams up with a Chinese communist agent to help save the world from some decadent capitalist who's threatening world peace. So they've already got films where the Chinese Communist Party uh, spy is one of the heroes. There's a number of those cases. and So that's also part of the asymmetric warfare. Thank you, sir. So we see that the communist Chinese army, its conventional warfare is untested, but they have a variety of means of unconventional warfare, which they are presently employing. Is that correct? That's correct. Can that also brings up another example, and that is there's a book out uh, on um, uh, how the Biden family and the White House is bought and paid for by the Chinese Communist Party, how the Democratic Party of America has been so compromised with money payouts by the Chinese Communist Party that there's many politicians in America, including the White House resident right now, um, who are compromised by bribes, effectively, uh, from the Communist Party. So they are not beyond buying up not only corporations, companies, and Hollywood film producers, directors, but even presidents and senators and congressmen. An old Chinese strategy, infiltrate and conquer. Yes, I think if we read Sun Tzu, we get a bit of an idea. The best way to beat your enemy is not to have to fire a shot. Dr. Hammond, can you please explain China's expansion beyond East, East Asia, particularly with regards to the Belt and Road Initiative? Yes, so the Belt and Road Initiative is particularly uh, thinking economics, that they want to have an ability to import and export for their massive economy. Of course, they're a major import of oil. They've got a voracious appetite for everything from wood to precious stones, gold, you name it. And China wants to export their products, that, you know, the cheap junk that breaks from their factories that's produced with slave labor. So they're building roads all over Africa and harbors and airports in order to be able to sell their products overseas and to import the raw materials they need from the rest of the world. And China is extremely dependent on other countries. And you can see how they're working all across Asia, but uh, they are working across Africa as well. We've seen how they've moved into Zimbabwe and taken over huge amounts of the farms, which used to feed the people of Zimbabwe, but now um, they're stripping it for, for mines. And the Marang Diamond Field, which produces a quarter of the world's diamond production every year, in southeastern Zimbabwe, what used to be Rhodesia, they have an airfield there and they are taking uh, with Antonov 126, one of the biggest aircraft transports in the world, loading them up with diamonds and so on and flying direct to China without stopping from Zimbabwe to China direct and not going through customs, not going through the capital. And this is the natural treasures of Africa being looted directly to China. China's a major player in the uh, rhino and elephant tusk um, poaching as well. So they are literally chomping down whole forests, wiping out whole herds of uh, endangered animals and stripping a lot of our coasts of the fish and other products for the Chinese trawlers, doing most of the plastic pollution in the world too. China is uh, taking out huge amounts of the natural resources of Congo, uh, Mozambique, Tanzania, Zambia, and uh, zipping it back to China. So China, their Belt and Road is basically, you could say, it's economic imperialism. It's it's part of the way of being able to um, 
use other countries for selling their products as markets and also to obtain raw materials from the rest of the world. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great anti-communist writer, once said that the Bolshevik Revolution was not a Russian revolution. The Bolsheviks enslaved the Russian people. Would you say the same can be said of China? Yes, to quote the Chinese Revolution would also be quite unfair because the Chinese people have been the main victims of it. It's an insult to the victims. It's it's an anti-Chinese revolution. It's a communist revolution, Bolshevik revolution. And in many cases, the top leaders in China are also being manipulated by some of these globalists. You can see how Klaus Schwab really loves Red China and he's involved the World Economic Forum, the Bilderbergers, the um, Council on Foreign Relations. A lot of the globalists and the banksters are heavily involved using China as well. So in one sense, China is a great existential military and economic threat to the world, uh, being a communist totalitarian state with expansionist ideas. But in another sense, they're also being used by a globalist elite using the huge numbers and uh, the manufacturing capabilities in order to destroy local independent businesses in South Africa. For example, Cape Town used to have a massive textile industry. We used to have uh, great fashion designers and be able to produce and export lots of great clothes. You can't do that now with China because China can produce products so much cheaper. Slave labor doesn't cost as much, of course. And so who can beat the price of slave labor? And so Red China's muscled in and destroyed a lot of the tailors and other local industries with their cheap junk. And I'm sorry to say, but it is junk and it is cheap. And unfortunately, cheapness is what often um, gets the market. Very hard to sell good quality things at a much higher price when you can get cheap stuff available at a fraction of the price. And so China is definitely destroying a lot of the local uh, freedoms and productivity that we've got. I would say Red China is a tool in the hands of the globalists, even though they might think that they are using the Western globalists. I think in some cases the Western globalists are using China more. And you can see also how there's leaders in the West, such as Justin Trudeau in Canada or Biden in America, who are plainly in the pockets of China, but they think they are manipulating China to achieve their globalist aims. Who's going to win in this game where both are trying to use one another for different ends uh, remains to be seen, but I think we can see in the light of what the Bible's warning about in Revelation 13, a one-world government, and a one-world economic system, and a, a one-world religion, you can see that's the goal of the beast. And China and the New World Order are working together on an anti-Christian goal. So we need to understand the times and know what God wants his people to do in resisting this. Amen. How can we help the Chinese people today? And how can we be better prepared to fight Marxism and communism when it presents itself? Well, to understand China, the best is to open up Operation World. They've got a website, of course, Operation World by Patrick Johnson and Jason Mandrake, outstanding, the intercessory handbook for every country in the world. So read more about China, be informed, be interceding, mobilize your people, and support Taiwan, the Republic of China. Free China needs our support. Products made in free China are superior. I've gotten quite a lot of books and Bibles printed in Taiwan. Between Singapore and Taiwan and South Korea, you get the best printing at the best quality and the cheapest prices in the world. The work ethic in, in Taiwan is excellent. There's a large number of Christians there, a large number of evangelical Protestants. 
the freest country in Asia is probably Taiwan, Republic of China. The worst government on the planet is probably Red China. So you've got two Chinas. One is extremely free, Republic of China on the island of Taiwan. Mainland China and the Communist Party is uh, one of the worst totalitarian governments of the world with one of the worst human rights records. So this is a bit of a microcosm of the battle worldwide between freedom and totalitarianism, communism. You've got the globalists who are using China and you've got Taiwan representing nationalism. So I think for us this is a clear picture between faith and atheism, between uh, freedom and communism. And uh, Taiwan deserves our support. Whatever we can do to support Republic of China or Free China is good. And the church in China, there are missionaries in China and we've even got people who've gone through our Great Commission course who are working in China uh, doing missionary work, not that you're allowed to go to China as a missionary, but people might be there, say, teaching English as a foreign language or as a technician. And uh, so there are Christians in China doing work and being a witness while doing uh, work that they've called in a foreigner to help them with. We must pray for China. We must support missionary work in China. We can also get gospel booklets in Chinese for Chinese people that we meet or that visit us around here. World Missionary Press provides us with great resources. All Nations Gospel Publishers also help. I think we need to have a China uh, focus because there's a lot of Chinese in our communities. There's a Chinatown in Cape Town. There's in New York and Washington, D.C., Pretoria. All over the place you see Chinese merchants moving in. Uh, we mustn't be blind to it, but see, there are also people who need the gospel. Witnessing to Chinese people in your general area or if you go on holiday or for business in that area in, China, in Asia, then to be sure to take gospel booklets and sow it. Uh, but again, I think it's more important to support Free China because Free China is also broadcasting the gospel into Red China. What does Martin Luther say about being where the battle rages? Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldiers proved and to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. And so, yes, China is the biggest mission field in the world in terms of a nation, and uh, it is one of the most resistant mission fields in the world. So it should be a focus of prayer and extraordinary effort. We shouldn't be afraid of a war with China. Of course, it would be disastrous if it came to a full-on shooting war, which it probably will because China wants it, whether we want it or not. But the best way to have peace is to prepare for war. Uh, if you want peace, prepare for war. Peace through superior firepower and preparedness, which I think is a philosophy of the Republic of Free China and Taiwan. They are well-trained, highly motivated and prepared. We should be willing to stand by them and support them because they are a linkpin in the containment of communism strategy for protecting the Pacific from communist expansion. And they are protecting the southern flank of Japan. Uh, Japan and Taiwan should stand together. One would hope Australia would have the foresight to stand with them as well. Uh, the Philippines too. There's The free countries in the region should think in terms of what can we do to support freedom and not allow expansion of totalitarianism, which, let's face it, won't stop with one country. It'll keep going, therefore. We need to be... And I think that what's going on in Ukraine is a great distraction from the real threat. The real threat is China and the globalists, and we should be seeking to focus there. We should also be concerned as to why is it that people like Bill Gates are so heavily involved with China and doing so much to help China? And why do so many Hollywood film production companies fall over themselves to appease China? 
and literally reorganized whole films so as not to offend China. There was one film totally finished uh, that they had to rework digitally at the cost of millions of dollars so as not to offend China. It was Red Dawn, uh, the remake Red Dawn. The original one had Soviet Union invading America. It came out in the 80s. But a more recent Red Dawn had China invading America. Well, China then complained, so the, the company digitally changed every uniform and the markings from the red Chinese to the uh, North Korean symbols and changed the script to the very implausible North Korea invades and takes over America, which, considering the size of North Korea, is particularly laughable. But they did it, and they digitally altered every image of um, uh, red China out of the film and inserted North Korea, changed whatever was needed in terms of audio as well. And uh, so they did the film. After filming had finished and editing was finished, they redid that uh, the cost of another $6 million just to appease China. So China's got a huge impact on these companies and uh, they will often do whatever uh, China wants them to do. And you can see all the toys in Disney and McDonald's are made in China. In fact, most American flags are probably made in China too. And we need to stop supporting slave labor in China, start supporting real freedom. Thank you, Dr. Hammond, for helping our audience understand these important issues. How can our hearers get in touch with you to find more information about our mission, Frontline Fellowship? Please visit www.frontlinemissionsa.org, SA, short for South Africa, frontlinemissionsa.org. And there's also North American version, frontlinemissionna.com. .org. .org, also. Frontline Mission NA, short for North America, uh, .org, or Frontline Mission SA, short for South Africa.org. So you'll find the books, videos, audios, um, articles, um, all kinds of resources and different projects that you can support. Thank you again, Dr. Hammond. This program is brought to you for the eradication of Marxism and for the exaltation of Christ our Lord and Savior. Thank you for listening, everyone. God bless and good night.